Okay, if you guys want to get out your Bibles, we'll be in the second chapter of Acts, I do believe, uh, this morning. And uh, I'd like to thank Brock for his introduction. I should probably say shame, shame on him for all that he said, <laughs> and then shame on me for liking it so much, you know. But uh, that said, we're going to pick up in the 14th uh, verse this morning, as you guys have been journeying through uh, Acts chapter 2. And uh, to catch you up to speed, in case you weren't here, or uh, in a week's time you forgot, um, just let me share with you that in the first four verses, um, we have the coming of the Spirit kind of uh, all set up. Uh, the setup's happening as you start the book of Acts. And you know this thing about the book of Acts. Uh, when you when you think about Acts, um, it's a record of the Acts, not of the apostles, but of the Holy Spirit, as I'm sure Brock has told you. But uh, the Feast of Pentecost, which is covered in Acts chapter 2, happens uh, 50 days, uh, Penta is uh, 550, 50 uh, days after Passover. And Pentecost, as I'm sure he shared with you, is one of the three big feasts in the Israel holiday year. So uh, the males in that day would travel from all over the known world uh, to Israel to celebrate. And a lot of them would just stay from Passover all the way uh, to Pentecost. So that's the idea here. Jesus is he's killed on Passover. He raises on the day of first fruits. He hangs around for 40 days. And when he leaves, he tells his apostles, go hang out uh, in the upper room for 10 days and wait for the coming of the Spirit. And so... Uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon these who were waiting in the upper room uh, on the day of Pentecost. And as you looked at, the symbols of uh, the Holy Spirit's coming upon them was the sound of a mighty rushing wind and then uh, the sight, the tongues uh, as of fire. So remember, uh, this is a key theme when you think about sound, uh, a mighty rushing wind, and sight, uh, which is the tongues of fire. In the scriptures, the hearing of the word always precedes seeing anything. Uh, you know, it's faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, all that said, it's quite a shocking event. Uh, these guys have tongues of fire, mighty rushing wind. And the reaction you guys would have looked at last time you were together as well in chapter 2, verses 5 through 13, that... The observers, the people standing around, as all these people are uh, smashed, if you will, into the city of Jerusalem, uh, they have these uh, disciples, tongues of fire on them, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and then the people that are, are standing around the temple at that time, uh, the observers, they're, they're both amazed, we read, and they're uh, perplexed, they're full of wonder. And then, interestingly enough, what we typically do as religious folks is any kind of perplexity, uh, quickly turns into criticism. <laughs> we love to cannibalize our own. And so what they do is they look around, they go, wow, this is amazing. Uh, they must be drunk. And uh, we know that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 18, don't be uh, drunk with wine unto dissipation, uh, but be filled uh, with the Spirit. And one of the reasons he says that is because uh, the enemy, uh, Satan, is he's a wonderful imitator. He's got nothing original. But he's one heck of an imitator. And uh, liquid spirits are a poor imitation. It's, it's Satan's imitation of the Holy Spirit. So you find someone that's addicted to or uses 
liquid spirits as a crutch, you'll find someone who has that in place typically of the, the Holy Spirit. And so this is what happens. They look around and they say, man, everybody must be drunk. We've never seen anything like this in our lives. And so what happens is the, this is the whole backdrop to what we're going to look at this morning because Peter begins to explain the Spirit. He says, here's your reaction. You think that everybody's drunk? No, it's the Holy Spirit, and I want to explain it to you. Now, uh, Brock said a bunch of nice things about me, and I was flattered, and, uh, and yet I don't think he really likes me because he gave me like 32 verses, some of the deepest, richest verses in the book of Acts. So we get to, uh, you know, take off quick. It's, it's like a bush plane here. We're not a 747. We're going to take, take off so that the treetops don't get us, and then we're going to get up to about 10,000 feet because we don't uh, truly have, uh, you know, we don't have gauges in this plane, and we're just going to fly by sight for about 25 minutes, and we're going to touch down and take communion. That's all we got to do this morning, and then we'll be fine before we eat. Now, all that said, here's the explanation he begins to give. Verse 14, he says, uh, Peter stood up with the 11, that's the other 11 uh, apostles, as it were, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So that's nine uh, in the morning. The Jewish day started at six. So I have known people that have been drunk at the third hour of the day, but apparently it was uncommon. Peter looked around in that day and said, look, I don't think this is it because uh, nobody would be drunk at the third hour of the day. But he said, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So notice we've got a new covenant being ushered in. We've got a new system being ushered in. Jesus fulfills the law, and now the law is the law of liberty. It's by the Spirit. And so instead of doing all of the 613 commandments of the law externally, the Holy Spirit is now going to come inside, and in fact, it, as we're looking at here, come upon to empower people to be witnesses, to live the law out uh, through the love of Christ. So these guys don't have any context for this deal. I mean, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on people here or there, uh, and sometimes it was rather weird. You know, uh, Saul is getting ready to try to kill David, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he gets naked and prophesies. <laughs> you know, there's some really weird kind of interactions between, in the Old Testament uh, period, the Holy Spirit and uh, folks that were involved with him. Now, that said, here, Peter wants to give them some context. So, please understand this. And in the church of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, he's probably the most uh, misunderstood and on one side devalued person of the Trinity. And then on the other side, he's probably the most focused on and the most abused person of the Trinity. And, and all that said, what you need to know about the Holy Spirit and how he works is he'll never work apart from that which Scripture proclaims, right? He won't be doing something that Scripture doesn't show him to do because he's truly a witness uh, to and of Jesus Christ. So Peter begins to take them to that which they know, which is what we would call the Old Testament, their Hebrew Scriptures, and he takes them to Joel. And uh, he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel from Joel chapter 2, and it shall come to pass in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, lest you be confused about the last days, 
the last days began with the first coming of Jesus, and they end with the second coming of Jesus. So when you see the phrase last days, it covers a, up to this point, 2,000-year period. And uh, when you see the word last day, singular, then that speaks of one event, the second coming of Christ. So all that said, he says, this is what Joel said. It's going to come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maid servants and on uh, my men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And so no classification for those who will have the spirit poured out upon them. Anyone who, as we're going to see, believes. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth up beneath and blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome, look, singular, day of the Lord. So when the Holy Spirit comes on people, uh, they're going to prophesy. They're going to dream dreams. They're going to have visions. But then there's going to be all kinds of ecological disasters before the coming, the physical second coming of Christ. And it shall come to pass that, notice this, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's important because uh, the other person of the Trinity that gets uh, so heavily debated about is Jesus, his person and his work. And in uh, systematic theology, there is a theology called soteriology where people like to thumb wrestle over, uh, you know, did uh, God pick me or do I pick God? You know, who can be saved and how are they saved? Just know this, uh, it shall come to pass in this New Testament era that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, he goes from that. Here's the biblical context, he says, for this event. And then he moves directly into the gospel. He wastes no time. And it's pretty amazing that Peter does this because he's, he's the first person to ever give a New Testament gospel evangelical Billy Graham style message. Nobody's ever done this before. And he was a fisherman uh, just three and a half uh, years before. And so he then now declares the gospel. Men of Israel, hear these words. And so he starts with, and you have to understand, the gospel is always the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. It's Jesus himself. So he starts with Jesus' life. And he says that Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. And then verse 23, he moves on to his death. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and you've crucified and you've put him to death. Now, this is a largely Jewish audience and he's saying, you killed your Messiah. The guy you've been waiting for, you killed. Now, that said, the crucifixion of Jesus was no accident. Notice that it was uh, determined and it was foreknew by the purposes of God. So it wasn't mankind out of control that actually killed him. Even though he's saying that the Jews killed him, the truth is, and we're going to see this in a little bit, we all killed Jesus in one sense for our sins. But in another sense, uh, there was no one who killed Jesus. He says, I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. 
And so from before the foundation of the world, he was a lamb that was slain. He came, loved you and I so much that he knew before he created mankind, he would, uh, by his own free will, die for mankind. And so here what Peter's trying to say is it was the plan of God that Jesus was killed. And this is proved by the fact that it was prophesied a thousand years before by the psalmist. And by the way, Isaiah, he covers the crucifixion in detail in chapter 52, in chapter 53, 700 years before Christ. It was prophesied that the Christ would die, and it was in God's timing and by God's choosing. And so he said, this one that died, verse 24, now he moves to the resurrection, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it, and now he's going to go on to talk about this resurrection. And please understand the cross is uh, the payment for our sins. But the proof that the cross was actually uh, significant and sufficient was at the end of uh, Jesus' life. He, at the very last, cries out, to Tetelestai, it is finished, or paid in full. It's also translated paid in full. And then the resurrection is the receipt that the check didn't bounce. The, the resurrection is the receipt. It proves uh, paid in full. And so now until verse 32, he talks about the resurrection. And he goes again to David. He takes an Old Testament passage of Scripture to prove that what they're saying and what they have noticed and proclaimed now if they're following Jesus or they're wondering who Jesus is, it's all from the scripture. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, and I shall not uh, be shaken. He begins to quote from Psalm 16. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption." Jesus would die, but he wouldn't stay there. He wouldn't uh, rot in hell. And you have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Now he's got their attention. So he says, men and brethren, let me speak to you freely of the patriarch David. And you got, you got, to, you got to understand David is one of their big three guys. I mean, their, their big three guys are Abraham, Moses, David, and maybe a fourth would be Elijah. I mean, he says, look, David... The guy that's the patriarch, he is the, as we all know, he's the ancestor of the Messiah. Uh, let me speak freely to you about David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And therefore, being a prophet, David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to uh, the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He said that David was prophesying, the father of the Messiah was prophesying that the Christ, the Messiah, that's what the word Christ means, would be raised up to sit on his throne. And he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, from Psalm 16 that we just read, nor did his flesh see corruption. And this Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. He says, everybody here saw Jesus raised and of course Paul will go in he says 500 saw Christ raised at one time and then uh, he transitions now uh, Peter into the ascension and therefore being exalted to the right hand of God 
he was ascended and then he was also exalted and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear so jesus had been talking about i gotta go so why i could leave you a helper and it's actually going to be better that i go because now i'm going to leave a helper that's not just with you like me can find a one time and space and place in this body but the holy spirit who's going to be in you and then he went on to say he's going to come upon you and so he says this is the fulfillment of what jesus spoke and so jesus ascended he was exalted to the right hand of the father and he poured out this which you now see and hear and so verse 34 for david did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand till i make your enemies your footstool and he says look all this is prophesied that jesus was resurrected he quotes from david psalm 16:10 and he said this was prophesied it was promised that the messiah would be resurrected that he wouldn't have his soul left in sheol and this was his then ascension and exaltation following this it's all a sign that Jesus' words were true. He said Jesus himself that when they asked him for a sign, they said, give us a sign, give us a sign. And he said, you're not going to get any sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He was three days in the belly of the fish, and he uh, then was raised up, spit out, so to the Son of Man. And so Peter's saying here, the resurrection happened, just as Jesus said, now he's ascended where God exalted him to the right hand and he's poured out his Holy Spirit and he is waiting to practically do what he just did spiritually. Spiritually, when Jesus ascended into heaven and he exalted by the Father himself to the right hand, what he did was he did this spiritually. He made his enemies his footstool. He went lazy boy on it. He is resting in his finished work until the day that he returns to do it practically till I make uh, your enemies your footstool is what David said. So it's happened spiritually and it will happen practically. And therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. Now again, he's trying to get their attention whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so the conclusion is, verse 37, when they heard this, they're cut to the heart, and Peter could tell that they, they were torn by the Holy Spirit. And they said, uh, you know, what should we do? Men and brethren, what are we going to do? They said this to Peter and the rest of the apostles. And Peter said to them this one thing, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus for the remission of sins. And he, uh, you shall receive power, uh, of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit when you believe. And so on him you believe, and in him you shall receive the gift of the Spirit. And so here uh, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Now, uh, even though it's one phrase here in this particular uh, section, it's not you must repent and be baptized to believe. It's repent and then be baptized. And uh, Paul says this into the Corinthians. Uh, for those who think that baptism is salvific, 
Paul says, look, I came to preach the gospel. I didn't come to baptize. I can't even remember how many of you guys I did baptize. <laughs> if it was that for salvation, then Paul uh, would have really camped on it. Plus the thief on the cross. He was saved, if you will, and he was taken to heaven, or it would have been in that point in time paradise before Jesus uh, descended and ascended, and he was taken right away uh, by his belief because he repented, which means to turn around. And so Peter says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, repent and be baptized. And so baptism is uh, like Old Testament circumcision. Baptism is the outward sign of an inward change. And so here's the manifestation for uh, the Spirit comes upon. And now the man, what's the Spirit look like? How does he reveal himself? And so that's what happens. He says, this is for this promise to you and all your children who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So he says, this Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and it's for you, and the idea is eventually it's going to be to those afar off, the Gentiles. And here's what happens. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation, and then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 of them were added. So, uh, so you know, the rabbis say that the law was given on the day of Pentecost. And, uh, and so at Mount Sinai, Moses gave the law on the day of Pentecost. And that's pretty interesting because then here we have the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. So um, it's a spiritual birthday of Israel. It's a spiritual birthday of the church. And interestingly enough, you know, the fire and uh, the noise, the wind, as it were, descended on Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. And the same kind of thing happened at the giving of the Holy Spirit, the fire and the mighty rushing wind. And yet, uh, please note this, and many of you probably know this, that at the giving of the law, as, as Moses is trying to give the law, the people are having a big party and 3,000 of them die. The law always brings death. The law either points out how you can't live up to it, or the law then actually causes you to focus on your sin and speeds you into a sin cycle and sin fully grown always leads to death, whereas the Spirit, when He's given, 3,000 people are made alive in Christ Jesus. 3,000 people are saved. And so the Spirit always uh, gives forth and brings uh, life. And so uh, on the Feast of Pentecost, here the church, the church is birthed and the Holy uh, Spirit is given and life is had. Life is the key indicator of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to separate them from this perverse generation which they've been a part of. And then verse 42. Here we're going to have in verse 42 the activities, the four activities of the early church. So what the Spirit did was he saved 3,000 souls. He, he caused them to be cut to the heart and uh, they were saved. And they were gladly then baptized. They professed their faith uh, publicly. And then they continued steadfastly, verse 42, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. 
So here's the four uh, activities of the early church, and in my mind, this should be the four activities of any church. And the first one is teaching. And by the way, teaching is different than preaching. Uh, preaching has some teaching in it sometimes, uh, but most of the time preaching is just a, a conveyance of information and typically forcefully. So, so preaching is to herald, that's the old King James word, we don't use it much anymore, but to proclaim boldly. Whereas teaching is actually not just the proclaiming of information, but it's the, also the wisdom. How do you live it out, you see? Because you know that knowledge is knowing something. Uh, understanding is knowing how that thing works. And wisdom is then knowing how to actually apply it to your life. So they say that wisdom is knowing that um, tomato is a fruit. Um, you know, that, that's knowledge actually. Knowledge knows that uh, tomato is a fruit, but uh, wisdom is knowing uh, not to use it in a fruit salad. Right, that's, I got it out finally. That's how it works, right? <laughs> a lot of people know, so, but hey, so wisdom is knowledge applied. And so teaching. And so uh, the work of the church, as Brock mentioned before, is the, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So uh, specifically what you're involved in here is what they were involved in there. It's teaching of the whole Bible. And I don't know what your background is, so I, I don't wish to offend, but I grew up, and we would always say things, and I, I was blessed enough to grow up in a church, so uh, let me get that out. But uh, we would say things like, we teach from the Bible. And I would think, well, what else would you do at a church if you don't teach from the Bible? I found out later that people do lots of things, apparently, at church that don't have anything to do with teaching from the Bible. But you'd think at a very base level, teaching from the Bible would be what you do. But teaching from the Bible is a lot different than teaching uh, the whole Bible. <laughs> you know, to show up week after week and, and study through a book, you know, no matter where you're at. And so I, I always love it because the Bible meets you, uh, I've heard it said, right where you're at. And just think about uh, what are the chances that you could be journeying through Scripture at whatever pace Brock's journeying through Acts, you know, you're just getting started here, and you would land on the birthday of the church, you know, on the birthday of, uh, <laughs> of your church that you're attending. I mean, it just blows me away. There are no coincidences in Christ. But that said, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. That's why we study the whole thing. If you don't get the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So if you don't have the Old Testament as a basis, you won't get half the stuff in the New Testament. You won't understand what Jesus uh, did and who he is. And so it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And Paul said this to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said to them, he went out of his way to meet them at Miletus. And he said, you knew that I was with you three years and I didn't shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Apparently, Paul taught them the whole Bible in three uh, years. And so while milk is good, you know, a lot of people have the idea, well, we can't, we can't give people too much. You know, we don't want to dive in too deep. It'll run them off. We need to give them milk, you know, initially. But, but the truth is, uh, the Bible is about a seventh grade reading level, really. And I'm, I'm guessing most of us here can read at that level and comprehend at that level. And so milk is good, but uh, when you teach, you give people meat and uh, meat makes mighty uh, men and women of faith. And, and Paul says this to the Hebrews. He says, look, we've got, we got to get into the meat of the word. We've got to grow into the things which uh, build up and, and grow deep roots. 
And as you feed on the meat of the word, your appetite actually begins to grow. You ever notice you, um, you, you begin to get an appetite for what you, uh, what you partake. You know, you can make yourself like almost anything, oddly enough. You know, I, I convinced myself at the age of 15 that I like to chew skull. You know, after I puked four or five times, I finally convinced myself it was awesome until I became hooked on it. You know, I drink coffee every morning. Who's ever liked the first cup of coffee they ever drank? Now I can't be without it. I, it's the one thing I crave in the morning. Like we, but oddly enough, we get an appetite for that, which, and so, you know, my, my son doesn't like broccoli because funnel cakes are all he's ever eaten, you know, for the most part. You know, it's how it works. You, you like what you like. And so you can change a person's appetite uh, by what they feed on. So as you feed on the meat of the word, you grow, and your appetite grows for that. No longer will cotton uh, candy or funnel cakes do it. And so it's doctrine that he says here that they're going to continue in steadfastly, and then also fellowship. Now, fellowship's an interesting one. Uh, it means communion or communication or sharing. Um, and uh, I've heard it said that um, fellowship can be described like this. It's two men in a boat but uh, rowing in the same direction. <laughs> Not just being in a boat together, but rowing in the same direction. So um, I should say this about fellowship, and I have it there for you, I think, that it's possible um, to be a Christian and not fellowship regularly. I can't say it's not possible, but I'm for sure scripturally that it's impossible to be a strong Christian and not fellowship regularly. Which is why Paul says in Hebrews chapter 10, look, don't forsake the assembly of the brethren together um, because you're going to stir each other up and do it more as you see the day approaching. And I like the fact that he uses the word, the word is actually assembly and not gather because assembly is, um, it's like Legos, right? So to gather is what my kids used to do with their Legos. Hey, put up the Legos. And so they would take them and they would rake them all off into a pile, right? And sometimes they'd get in the bucket, and sometimes when I got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I would step on them, and then I would become the cussing Christian, you know, wrecking, smitten, fretting, and angry, and upset. And then, you know, we're going to have a family meeting. The Legos got to go in the... And so that's gather, but assemble is what they're supposed to do with the Legos, you know, to make something that looks like the picture on the box. And, and God called us not to gather on... Uh, Sundays, Wednesdays, whenever we gather as a church, but to assemble. That when we show up, we actually fit together as, as pieces to represent Christ uh, as to whatever picture he has for himself to be shown to our local community. And so assembly um, is to grow us so that we will be fruitful as we go. We are equipped for the work, you know, for the, the work of the ministry. So as we go out, we'll be fruitful. And then he says, uh, not just uh, fellowship, but the breaking of bread. And uh, we're going to observe this here in just a few minutes, and I promise you it'll be just a few minutes. That the breaking of, of bread is the Lord's Supper or communion, which uh, Jesus instituted the night of his arrest. Now, as we mentioned, baptism reveals uh, your death and then your life with Christ. But communion remembers Christ's death for you and I. And so it's an important part of the local church. Some people observe communion every time they get together. Some people do it 
uh, quarterly a few times a year. Uh, we, I assume here, uh, once a month, right, monthly. Uh, where, where I pastor, we do it the first uh, service of every month, the first week. And so uh, a lack of respect for the Lord's Supper can make a, a Christian uh, sick or a church weak, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because we actually uh, mystically commune with Christ in this act, where we remember what he's done for us, and then uh, we partake in it, and uh, in some ways uh, reset uh, where we are with him. And then finally, uh, he talks about prayers. And when he talks about prayers, he's not just talking about the prayers that you make um, on your own, you know, your prayer life is important individually, but he's talking about corporate prayer, because what the church does when uh, they pray is, in a different way than individual prayers, uh, corporate prayer moves the heart of God, uh, and so Jesus said in Matthew 18, if you, if you guys get together and you agree upon anything in my name, it'll be given to you. Now, obviously, we could hunt down that trail for a while. It's got to be within the will of God, but what he's saying is there's power in corporate prayer. And we're urged to come boldly, Hebrews says, to the throne of God. And the reason that God is so close to uh, prayers and then when his saints get together, the corporate prayers are so wonderful is uh, that the prayers of the saints are, uh, according to Revelation chapter 8, verse 4, um, incense that rises up, kept in bowls under the throne of heaven, that God breathes, and it reminds him, uh, you might say, of home, you know. I don't know what home is to you, right? Uh, when I think of my childhood, we bumped around, we moved all the time, so I, I don't really have a place I truly consider home, but the one place that till I was about 15 that was stable was my grandma and grandpa on my dad's side, and this, this is what home uh, is to me. If I think back, it's um, an old ramshackle house on an Ozark hilltop. Um, my grandpa chain-smoking Paul Malls. You know, he didn't need a lighter once he got up. He just lit one and then lit the next one off that one, you know. And, and uh, him drinking Sprites and ham and beans every day at a low simmer on the stove. Every day he ate ham and beans for lunch. And uh, my grandma, mothballs, you know, I mean, what, what in the world? They're stuffed in every uh, corner, you know, and going upstairs where my dad's attic was and looking through his things, and they're, you know, and they're being mouse poisoned. Uh, the mice had carried all the poison into his stuff, me playing with that, licking my lips and all that stuff, you know, and, uh, and that, and then, you know, and then uh, cupcakes and, uh, you know, and uh, Twinkies, and all the stuff I couldn't have at my house, you know, and then, uh, and so, and I just, when I think about it, it's always dark in there, and they've got a, a television, and they had this deal where they had the console television from the 70s, and they had a, another television set on top of it, and they had a smaller one that worked sitting on top of that one, you know, and, and we're watching, and, and we had antenna TV, and the, and the only, and you could get, if it was pointed this way, it was, uh, it was it was channel 12 out of Cape Girardeau, but if you wanted any St. Louis station, my grandpa rigged it up where he had to go behind in this janky, uh, it was it was a plug-in, you unplugged, you plugged it into another antenna, now you can get channel 5 and watch a football game, you know, and, and, and do you understand that when we, pr that's what the prayers of the saints together, that's what smells like to God, that's what, you, we, you know, the, the, Jesus said, I, I, uh, I, I call my house a house of prayer, 
been called a house of teaching or fellowship or even communion, but he calls his house a house of prayer. And prayer is the least attended thing at any church, including the one I pastor, because people don't get it. And when you get together, this is how God responds to you. It's how, it's how it smells to him. So uh, finally, he goes on to say, Then notice when they did these things uh, daily, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed uh, were together, and they had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and their goods, and they divided uh, them among all as anyone uh, had need. And so they kind of just stayed there in this little communal type deal. And continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart and praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord God added to the church daily those who were being saved. So uh, they did these four things steadfastly, and here's what happened. Godly fear came upon them. Uh, signs and wonders were done through them. Uh, needs were met among them. They were taking care of each other. Favor was had with them. Oddly enough, as they were living these things out daily, uh, people didn't hate them initially, but they were intrigued by them. And then regenerated lives were added to them. And you're going to see down the road that this little communal thing that started, it, it couldn't last forever. They couldn't do this every day together. In fact, uh, the church at Jerusalem had some weakness for trying to hang on to this little, uh, you know, this little slumber party they were having together. But, but they were doing these four things, and God, as you do these things steadfastly, whatever that looks like in your culture, these are the things that are going to happen. If you continue as a church in these four things, then uh, these are the results of that. Now, I want to close by uh, just saying this. And I, I would have closed a lot quicker, but it, remember, it's Brock who gave me 32 verses. Um, and so um, if, you, if you have a problem with uh, that, please blame him. Um, when you do these things as a church, when you keep the main thing the main thing, uh, then what happens is uh, Jesus is going to weed out all kinds of problems in your life individually and in your church uh, corporately. And so um, please notice one last thing with me that in the beginning of the church, um, souls were added as God saw fit. And I truly believe that one of the beautiful aspects of a new church plant or a church that's young is that God adds souls. And you're going to see that down the road in the book of Acts, God will eventually multiply. And that's an exciting thing too, but it changes. It looks different. And so if you're sitting here this morning, you're probably a pretty unique individual if you're in a church that's a year old. You know, you're either a pioneer, you're not afraid of something new, Maybe you've been hurt by church before. You know, you kind of limped in here looking for something that wasn't like what you left. Uh, or, you know, maybe you're a, a, a first-time believer that this is all you'll, you've known and all you'll ever know. But no matter where you've come from, let me encourage you that in your lives individually and in this church corporately, please uh, study the Word of God. Read it through every year. 
Uh, I just had the opportunity. I read it through in 90 days. Uh, I just finished this morning. I might, I might drive up here. I listened to the last uh, three books. And, uh, and I'll tell you, there's something that happens. It's transform. The Word of God reveals the God of the Word. And it'll transform your lives by the renewing of your mind. Uh, pray. Uh, praying, it's just like a muscle. If you exercise it, it gets stronger. You'll figure it out. Just talk to the Lord. And uh, fellowship. You know, the amazing thing about a church is that um, if you look around this room, I don't know how many of you guys know each other, but I, I would guarantee you that there are some people in here you would never come in contact with, nor would you pick to come in contact with them outside of the common denominator of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing to me. And finally, communion. I'm going to call Jake and Michaela up here. And communion truly is this. It's just a remembrance. It's an opportunity to focus on Christ, his death, and his resurrection. And instead of being somber, uh, more so it's supposed to be celebratory. And so for some of us here, we may need repentance. But for others of us here, we just need to remember who Christ is and what he's done. Because if you focus on Christ, then, uh, then he brings joy and the Holy Spirit uh, brings peace and uh, and. And what we do in communion is we hit, as I mentioned before, the reset button. And we say, Lord, would you, would you renew my first love? And so, Father God, as we observe communion, we ask that that's what would happen, that you would indeed uh, renew our first uh, love. Finds its inmost melody 
Every human heart its native cry. Then it Christ be magnified 